hell now? Welcome once again to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and we are at the height of the summer in the Northern Hemisphere here. But is there any holidays? Is there buggery, lads? Not getting any of that. Down below in the Southern Hemisphere, of course, we have winter going on. But more importantly than that, by the end of next week, before you hear next week's podcast, the Women's World Cup will have kicked off down there. So what you're going to see now in the next couple of days on this very podcast feed is me dropping in a few podcasts about the upcoming Women's World Cup because Ireland are there for the first time. The United States of America where many of you live they're also taking part so we'll drop in a little bit of uh a little bit of info around that so you'll be able to enjoy the girls in green so we'll be hearing from a friend of mine down in Nigeria he's going to tell us all about the Nigerian squad Ireland are playing them in the last game uh, Harji Johal another friend of mine in Canada she's going to tell us all about Canada and we'll hopefully have a little bit about Australia as well bonus podcast lads all about the bonus podcast this is indeed the podcast for the 70, mid, uh, 70 million odd Irish people around the world my name is Philip O'Connor it's a weekly thing uh, this week I have a fascinating conversation for you right the person I'm speaking to this week is none other than Nicola Keeney, right? Um, better known as Nick Keeney. I think I've always called her Nick. Um, I discovered Nick on social media. I've been on Twitter for a good while now, maybe 13, 14 years. And she was one of the people that I discovered because she was working for Sky News and ITV. And obviously I worked in journalism. She works in journalism. I worked with some big stories. So did she. And we sort of existed in each other's sort of uh, universe for a little while without ever sort of, you know, crossing paths physically or that kind of thing. But I got to know her more and more and more in recent years as she moved on through a more sort of interesting career path. So she went from working for some of the biggest news organisations in the world uh, to working for Twitter itself and analysing data and news trends and all that kind of thing. And she's had an absolutely fascinating career. So a few months ago, uh, we've been talking for ages about doing this podcast chat, as I think that she is. I started this podcast on the premise that there's no such thing as an ordinary Irish person abroad, and Nick definitely fits that bill. So we started talking about the possibility of sitting down to do a podcast chat, and then Elon Musk took over Twitter, and she her job was one of the many that went there, and she kind of didn't feel like talking for a little while, and she was finding a new job, and then she started a new job, and you know we said, oh, we'll do it this day, oh, that doesn't suit me, and that kind of thing. But we finally managed to get it done this week, and uh, I said I'd put it out for now remember if you want to support the podcast this is a community podcast right it only exists because the 70 million irish around the world do you can go to patreon.com forward slash our man in stockholm and you can throw in a fiver a month and it would be brilliant if you did that because the more i can depend on you guys the less i have to depend on the other work i bring in or on advertisers which i don't have or sponsors which i also don't have but uh, yes yeah, so if you could do that'd be brilliant and on the our man in stockholm podcast feed you will find the irish and sweden podcast and you will find the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast. This one overlaps a little bit with that one because Arrowman in Stockholm is often about media and journalism and that kind of thing. And you'll find a Premier Swedes podcast where I'm trying to interview all the Swedes that have played in England's Premier Football League. But for now, without further ado, let us get into the myth and the drink of it with Nicola Keeney from Ireland living in London with a remarkable career in journalism and data and tech and in all those lovely things and a new job that she'll tell us all about at the end as well. Nick Keeney, there are so many things that I want to ask you about because we waited a long time to do this, but I have to start with the most pressing issue. How is Pedro the dog after surgery? God, he's all right. He's sat next to me now, but the poor bastard keeps like 
picking away at himself and I had to put the cone of shame on him so he's walking around North London looking very very depressed and embarrassed so I don't know we'll see how we go but he's getting better what what was it happened to him did he get some sort of infection or something like that it's so on the heath there are all these grass seeds and I didn't really know about this until sort of my I met my partner and my partner sort of had Pedro and they get in under the skin and they cause a huge infection obviously dogs will never like leave something will they much like a child they'll just keep keep at it and then it gets infected he had a thing the size of i don't know like a a, smaller than a tennis ball but bigger than a marble like under his arm and i was terrified so took him to the vet 600 pounds later god forbid like they they lance it honestly next time i'll just do it myself and we'll see how we go (laughs) i was going to say she'll probably pay whatever just to get the dog fit again but no no nick's getting into the surgery business you know oh yeah Um, for sure uh, let's start with maybe how, like one of the questions I wanted to ask you was because you came onto my radar many years ago as a sort of a high-flying young journalist. And indeed, you were listed on Forbes 30 for 30 at one point, which is both a blessing and a curse, I can imagine. But when did you decide that you wanted to become a journalist and why? What was it that drew you to this profession? So I, I think it had never, it had always been something I was interested in. I liked writing. I was always curious. I think there's something, I think there's a thing about Irish people as well. A lot of, there's a lot of journalists and it's because we just, we dig into things. We can't let it go. We want to see what's going on. We want to understand it. We, and I do think we're probably a bit of a, not a distrustful nation, but we we assume that there's always more behind the story. So uh, being naturally like that, I think there was a period where, you know, you're at university and everyone is going into these finance jobs. And I went to work university and studied English and French and everyone was going, you need the internships, the Goldman, the EY, the this. And I, I panicked and I applied to some of them and I don't know how, but I managed to get an internship with one of them. I won't say which um, and went to the internship and like wanted to honestly kill myself every day. I was like this, if this is life, I am, I can't. And um, so one of the things that happened whilst I was there is I noticed some discrepancies on an audit I was doing and, you know, started looking into it and it, it felt like there was something wrong going on and it was just a mistake, but part of really like you know digging into the data looking at things and seeing that things are happening that shouldn't be happening so that sort of spurred me on to look into journalism more and I got to this point where I had a job offer from this company as a grad and the starting salary was more money than I'd ever seen like it took me I would say 10 years to get the same money in journalism but um, it was about 40k starting at 21 which is mad money when when you've never had it so um I nearly went to join and then I just realized I'll be miserable for the rest of my life. So I, I went and I did a master's in journalism and, you know, have been poor ever since, but have enjoyed it. <laughs> I've been absolutely skinned. Well, my God, have I ever had the crack. And um, you've been at the center of some sort of, you know, if you look back over your sort of CV, some wild things have happened to you and they happened quite young. So you got an awful lot of responsibility relatively young in your career. Like you've been foreign news editor for, for Sky News, I think. And there's a selection of other jobs in your CV. And when I saw the Forbes 30 for 30 thing first, I thought, you know, that's a bit of a millstone as well, you know. And um, how did you sort of talk yourself into getting positions of that kind of responsibility? Because because you also had a penchant for being at the center of where things were happening at the time, right? I guess it's again, I don't want to say it's the Irish thing, but we've the gift of the gab. And I think, you know, to, to speak to that specific incident, I've not really spoken about this before, but um, I, you know, I worked at uh, ITV for a bit with the likes of like Laura Koonsberg and some amazing journalists and Jess Brammer, who's now head of BBC programs. Um, and then went to Sky and worked, you know, my first TV kind of bit at Sky was working on Sunrise with Eamon Holmes in the morning and again you know a lot of Irish people doing those shifts but for the specifics of the foreign news editor you know I had been I'd wanted that job and I had you know I'd been doing late shifts and night shifts and 
you know, I think at Sky at the time, there, you know, one in, one out, there wasn't an opportunity to do it. And I, I was quite young compared to some of the others. But I just kept bashing away at it. And I sort of asked if I could shadow these people. And I stayed late and I didn't sleep. And I just kept doing it. And I'm not suggesting everyone should do that. But at the time, it worked for me. And then one day, um, you know, I had I got a call from a colleague saying, where are you? And I was on the way into the office. And she said, a plane has crashed in the Alps, uh, in the French Alps. Uh, we think everyone's dead. We don't know what's going on. And it was a German wings plane in 2015, the suicide, um, the pilot that committed suicide. And I remember I always had my passport on me. I was always hoping for an opportunity. And because I speak French, I went straight into the office and they had nobody to send. And you can imagine the face of the, the you know, the head of new, the head of foreign news being like, Jesus, who are we going to send? You know, people are all over the place. It'll take us two hours to get people here. And I just walked up to them and I said, I've got my passport. I speak French. You can send me or you can wait around and you can also get a French translation and send them. But if you send me, I'll go right now. And you know, I will always be so thankful to him because he he just went, he must have had, he'd had a look of panic on his face considering all the kind of potential problems that could happen. And he was like, fine, go. And that was my first real proper big terror attack foreign trip. And I think once you've done one of those things and, you know, we ended up climbing up the, the mountain trying to kind of evade police to get to the top of this site to kind of get a sense of, you know, what had happened, had it crashed, were they dead? We kind of knew, but we didn't have confirmation. And, you know, I remember we like climbed up this mountain. I, when you leave for a foreign send, I had no clothes. I had nothing. I had what was on me and I left with that and the passport. So I was wearing like, like a little black skirt and a top and these like inappropriate boots. And I ended up climbing up a mountain for seven hours, carrying a huge camera that probably weighed the same as me with a correspondent and um, the two of us with two bags of Mars bars each trying to make sure we had enough calories. And honestly, I was, I think I lost a stone that day, but we got there and that was really the beginning of people trusting me within the organization to deliver on the job. When you were leaving Sky News, right, that news editor said to you, right, Nick, go, right? What was the buzz like in the back of the taxi first time? Because that's the moment where you go, hang on a second, did I, do I really want to do this? Because you really are stepping into the great unknown, aren't you? Oh God, I was terrified. I was, I like, I was excited. I've always had a thing where like run to the story. And I think there's also when, you know, when something's happening or if there's, you know, I don't know, even with fights on the street and my mother hates this, like I'll try and go over and help or I'll try and do something. And mm. it's, a, it's a real compulsion, sometimes good. And sometimes it's got me in real physical like problems, but um, yeah, I was, sh I was shitting it. I was terrified. And, you know, I also, there was a moment that dawned on me that was like, oh God, you've never done this before. You don't know what to do. And, but then I did, I just thought to myself, you know what, there's a lot of incompetent people in the world who are doing a lot of things and surely, you know, I'll do my best. And we'll I could be go. one of them. <laughs> yeah, I kind of was like, how bad could it be? Because also, you know, I've, I've been lucky to always have the self-confidence of knowing I don't know how to do it, but I will figure out how to do it really quickly. Um, and that's always kept, kept me. I think a lot of a lot of this is confidence, right? If you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, you're not going to be able to. So, yeah, yeah I, was I was terrified, but also, and the correspondent I went with was terrified. And there was a moment, actually, a hilarious moment where we were doing a live. Um, and, you know, when you do a live, you have an iPad and the iPad connects directly to the studio. And so you can go straight live and, you know, present the show from there. And the correspondent was like to me, I've never done this before. You've done this right. And I was like, yeah, yeah, don't worry. I, I know exactly what I'm doing. I had never in my life. And afterwards, um, she did great. And like she presented and we ended up presenting the show live from, from the, the mountain. But uh, afterwards, I did tell her, I was like, you know, I, I have never done this before. This is my first send. And I've never even used the tech. 
And I wasn't, she, I wasn't sure if she was going to hit me or hug me. There was a moment where it could have gone either way. But actually, yeah, you just got to do it, right? This is the thing, you know, it's one of those things I had for many years. Now I, I can't do it as much anymore because there's just too many things. But always say yes. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Can you do that? Fucking yes. yes. Yeah, why not? You know, so uh, and, I, this language. Well, sure. Give me 20 minutes. Oh, I'll have a funny story for you, but I can't. I don't know if I can tell about a similar thing. But for driving, I am. Um, I never I'd never driven a car and I hadn't passed my driver's license. And um, Sky, I, so after the after the mountain Alps thing, I actually got a job on the foreign desk because they're like, look, she's good. She knows what she's doing. And they promoted me to that role, which was the highlight of my career, one of the highlights of my career. And then they told me, oh, you're going to go to this thing to do a FIFA story in uh, two weeks or something. And um, I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And they were like, you can drive, right? And I was like, yep, 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 yep. Got that license. I couldn't, I, I don't think I'd ever been in a car in the front seat at the time. So I, I took, I had took a week off. I had a week off holiday anyway, and I paid a thousand pounds, all the money I had to do a five day crash course. And at the end of it, you pat, you kind of do the test and you either pass or you don't. And I was desperate to pass. Um, and so I uh, did that. Thankfully I passed. And then on the Monday I went off on the send with my brand new license and, or it was maybe Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever, however long it took for it to come. And uh, I ended up driving um, not to the FIFA story, because, but there had been a terror attack in, I think, France. So I landed in Germany and almost immediately got told you need to drive to France. So not only had I never driven, I was driving on the autobahn like at a million miles an hour with two fellas in the car who were asleep, the correspondent, the cameraman who had no idea I couldn't fucking drive in a car the size of a van. Um, and at one point, I'm not joking, at at the, it was like two in the morning, I realized I was on the wrong side of the road and had been on the wrong side of the road for a good five minutes. Yes, exactly. Oh, God. I was just I mean, about to bring that up. It's gone, okay, you should have been on the right-hand side of the road there as yeah, well. Yeah, I was not. So if Sky News, anyone from Sky News is listening, I'm very sorry, but we're all alive. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. The statute of limitations have passed on that one. You cannot be punished <laughs> for that one. But again, it's that just that thing I said, of course I can do it. No problem, you know. Yeah. There's, um, there's like that driving thing is one of those things that comes uh, It comes up. Every I was going to ask you, you know, if they sent you to Russia or Italy or somewhere like that where it's a whole different ballgame, you know. Um, did you enjoy working there? Because one of the things about working in, in foreign news in particular is that thing that whatever's happening is happening now. And that thing of you being in the right place at the right time to go, that's both the opportunity, but it's also that thing of you could go into work any morning and you can end up absolutely anywhere that evening. You know, Did you find that very stressful or was that part of the attraction of it in the three or four years that you were doing that job? I think so. It, it didn't come without its costs. I think the really important thing that people maybe don't realize sometimes is, you know, I was away for months. And I think as well, because because you say yes, and I'm a yes person like yourself. Mm. You know, I remember at one point I was doing the um, bo the bombing attacks in Brussels for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I was there, you know, washing my underwear in the sink every day and, you know, having the hotel breakfast. And, you know, you kind of lose sense of perspective at some point. And then, you know, my partner at the time, who broke up not long after you know it's hard for them because they don't see you and they see you popping up in different countries and there's terror attacks and you know they don't know what to do and they don't know how to support you and you know especially in your 20s when you know we've not all had enough therapy to really deal with things like this but um I I know I remember being yeah in Brussels and thinking I was going to go home because the story kind of come to an end and then there was a terror attack in Mali and they said will you go to Mali and I was sort of like yep yeah, yep yeah, okay got on a went and had to go I went to go meet Alex Crawford, who's an amazing correspondent at Sky yeah. News in Brussels because uh, she needed to get the yellow fever shot. And so you, there's a place you could do that. I mean, you know, what was funny is in the waiting room, you had um, all the CNN people, all the NBC people were all there like, 
all of us looking at each other like who's gonna get on the flight first um and uh so yeah we we like got the flight over and also I was wearing clothes for Brussels and it was freezing at the time so getting off the flight in Mali where it's fucking boiling and you know you're also suddenly in a place where like people don't trust you there have been a huge terror attack in, in a Radisson hotel that we went to and you know again there's loads of young soldiers walking around with these guns the size of like tanks and they they don't look very competent and they're on these vans and at one point I remember you know, one of the trucks where they were on, like kind of went over a bump and I heard a gunshot go off and I thought, fuck, you know, we're going to, somebody's going to die here. And we were there for a long time. And I, I was very thin at the time as well. Like there's a thing about when you're on a foreign send that people don't realize, which is especially back in the day, we didn't have those cool little cameras. We had these massive edge cameras that were 40 kilograms or something. And it took took a few, like if you did it quick, you could get it up on the, the sticks in four or five minutes at best. And you got your live view on, but there was a setup time of 10 minutes. So you weren't going to get that breaking news unless you had it up already. Mm. You have to stand. So you don't want to take it down, but if you need to pee or something, you'd have to take it down and go off unless someone's going to wash it for you. So there was this kind of subconscious thing of don't eat too much. Don't drink too much because you don't want to have to use the bathroom. You need to be here. You need to be amongst everything. And so you end up, it's a physical toll on your body. You're not sleeping very much. You know, you're eating when you can. Um, and it's, yeah, I loved it. And I think, you know, I could do it in my twenties, but I think now I, I couldn't. And I really look at those people who are older than me now. They're in sort of forties, fifties. They're amazing. You know, they're, they're the pinnacle of their career, but my God, the toll it takes on your relationships on, you know, you won't see a lot of them married with kids if that's what you want to be doing. Um, it is a life decision. And I, I think it's something that people should consider when they're going into that type of journalism. I still do it in sports. Occasionally I'll be asked to do something like that, you know, and it is that thing of eat and sleep when you can, not when you have to, because when you have to, that's not going to happen. I actually picked up a, a couple of people. I was working with a major, major TV network there a little while ago. And I arrived at the hotel, you know, at like five o'clock in the morning to drive them to where we were going. And I'd already been to the service station. So I had breakfast in the car. They were coming to go, what are you doing this for? I go, wait and see, <laughs> you know, they, yeah. because they hadn't been in this situation before. And sure enough, they're going, oh, you know, can we stop and get something? No, no, we've got to go and get set up now. We're live at seven o'clock kind of thing, you know, so it is a, it's a learning. That, sorry, Dindra, do you find that you still have those habits? Because I, I find now, like if I'm leaving to see friends or if I'm going to something, I'll always, without thinking, have a load of water or snacks and plasters and shit in my bag because I just, like I went to a work event and uh, that was outside and everyone was like, oh, what are you bringing? And I was like, don't worry, I have this, 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 this. And everyone was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, I knew you brought the tourniquet. I was like, stop, stop. And you're standing there with your passport as well, because that never leaves always. you. you know? I've, to be honest, I've never, I don't leave the house without it. Like I always have my passport on me just in case. It's wild how they have these things. And they just become normal to you. Whereas other people like your friends are looking at you going, are you out of your mind? You know? Oh, and the thing sorry. is, you could just disappear in the, in the middle of that, you know? Come here to me. Oh, after... you... Yeah, go. Sorry. No, I was no, no. Say, I was, I, you reminded me of a time I was, um, I had finally had a day off and I went to meet my friend Lauren at an event in East London first day off I'd had and I had a few drinks and uh and I got the phone call and I knew the number and I was like oh Jesus what's happened and you're trying to see what you're trying to work out what's happened before you pick up the phone and I just got picked, picked up the phone and it was one of the other foreign news editors saying I need you to go right now to this place you need to get on a flight and um what it was is it was the uh in the Nice terror attack where a man had got in a truck and just mm -hmm. mowed down a load of people in the street I had no idea what the story was I hadn't a clue I just knew I had to get to the airport had nothing on me again was wearing outfit you'd go in you know summer dress in um, and then went to the airport and I was trying to work out what flight were they putting me on because there's no flight and actually what they'd done this was a brave decision by Sky and I don't think it had been done very often is they had chartered a flight for myself 
Um, I think Stuart Ramsey was there, Sam Kiley and some others. And we all got on this little flight and, so, you know, some of us had been out and we were a little bit like worse for wear because, you know, once you have a day off, you're like, I have a few drinks, you're fine. But obviously there's a few hours on the flight, but you can't sleep because you've got to sit there and you've got to work out what has happened and where to start. So I started like figuring out, you know, who do we need to speak to? Who are the case studies? What's going on? And then you get there and you sometimes, you know, you you're, you kind of get off this flight from a cold climate into this heat of Nice. And again, it's sort of, it's all very discombobulating, but you kind of work like a robot. You just go into auto drive where we need food, we need water quickly. Now we need to go speak to people. We need to get the story first because again, Sky News, you know, it's all about the breaking news. And I think depending on what organization you work in, you can be a bit slower, but for us, every second mattered. And again, we won some amazing awards, but you know, it does take its toll. Are you very competitive in that way? Because I kind of am, but then I'm kind of not, you know, because I've worked a lot for Reuters over the last 20 years and their thing is get it first, but first get it right. Now, that doesn't mean that you can just sit there twiddling your thumbs and wait for the story to come to you, but you will have, as long as it's like completely solid, nobody else needs to go through all this again. You deliver something, that's it. So, you know, it's great to be there with the breaking news. Would you be looking over your shoulder at CNN and CNBC and BBC 100%. World News? I was looking at their cameras to see if I could pull the cam- the battery out. Honestly, I was... You know, miserable bastard. Yeah, well, yeah, well, well, to be honest, yeah, well, I, I think, um, yes, competitive because it mattered, but also that you know yourself, there is a camaraderie. Like when you're doing those stories, you're all in a hotel together, especially for foreign terror attacks and things. Like ultimately, you know, there's only so many news breaking lines you're going to get. You're probably all going to get the same information at the same time. So there's not really any interest in you know not sharing. And also, I you kind of end up being friends with all of the people in the other organizations, and you know yourself as well. Media is so small. So, you know, everyone's worked at Beeb, everyone's worked at NBC, CNN. There's so much crossover and you all know each other. So you kind of, you get out of that. And I think in the beginning, you're desperate to prove yourself. And then within a few years, it's really cyclical. Like the same stories tend to come around and you, you, you know how to deal with them. Yeah. And you see the same people. Like I know when I go to set up my tripod now in sort of October, yeah. when the Nobel prizes are being announced, I, I'll be standing beside the same guy from AP yeah. and the same guy from AFP and we'll do the same dance we've always done and we'll all have a coffee and then the thing yeah. will be let out, you know, so it is. And then at the same time, you're technically competing against them. And if you were to sort of explain this to management or whatever, it's probably not going to work, you know, no. but you were always very interested in the technological aspect of news gathering, of information, of, you mentioned earlier in the conversation there about an uh, analog things but okay you know even when you're getting on the plane you're going okay give me all the data I can get so that led to you sort of moving from actually reporting the news to analyzing breaking news and to analyzing trends uh for among others I think it was data miner was one of the first ones and then CGTN and then onto Twitter and um, what uh, how was that different right but what were you doing when you were analyzing the news were you looking at the data itself were you looking at what other people were doing what information was available are you trying to add context you know, what, what does that job entail I think it was at a period when, you know, newsrooms were starting to like, they don't, they were moving towards digital. There was a real reluctance to move towards digital, but specifically with social media there, it was just as people were realizing that the news gathering, you know, opportunities on social media, particularly with Twitter at the time, you know, could give you the real edge. So we had been physically running around trying to break news faster than anyone else. And it became clear to me that, you know, actually I'm finding better lines and better case studies on Twitter than I am anywhere else. Like one of again, one of the first stories I did. Oh, I forgot this. Was um, I went up. I was I was doing like a like an internship thing at ITV, and it was when Lee Rigby happened, and they sent me to the Lee Rigby story in Woolwich. Your man who um, Michael Adebowale, you know, they decapitated him. I think in the street. Well, I don't think I know. Um, and you know, I'd seen some tweets 
um, of people talking about him that, that knew him. And that allowed me to kind of get in there and go speak to them and meet those people and get a sense of who the man was that did this and why. And it's those things that really kind of make a difference um, for the story. It gives it a sense of, you know, not anonymity, a sense of, you know, these people are normal people living their day. And one day they decided to do something that, that was like, I think it was, you know, one of the first incidents of domestic terror that we had seen in a long time, you know, that kind of, um, it and, and that was the beginning of a lot of things afterwards and a lot of different stories. And, and actually that was my first, so, that, so I suppose my first story in journalism, I sometimes forget about it, which is probably the trauma, was the Lee Rupik story. And you're seeing such horrific things and you're hearing horrific things um, that I kind of got a taste for it then. And, you know, how it couldn't be much worse than that. But uh, sorry, to your point, yeah, using Twitter as a social gathering news con like news gathering tool um really got me interested in it and there's ways you can search on twitter which i was kind of you know experimenting with using boolean searches using different kind of techniques and it just so happened that the company data miner who had been launched in this U the us and um had just started an office in london were looking for people with exactly those skills you know i remember you know a lot of bombs hap were happening in kabul at the time and there was also a lot of um uh, explosions in somalia and mogadishu and, and also in, in the UK, in Germany, like there, we had every, you know, I had um, lists and tweets and searches for every country in different sections that we'd be given. So someone would be on Europe, someone would be on uh, West Africa, et cetera. And so you'd see a tweet, for example, one of the things we um, we did was the, uh, the the stabbing in Burr Market and also Grenfell sort of fire. You know, those things start as a tweet of someone going, oh shit, I've just heard a gunshot in Westminster. And your mind goes, Nah, it's a car. There's no way that's happening. It's never happened before. But then you start start doing specific searches. And the real skill here is not kind of searching for words that would be in a headline, but searching for the kind of words and tone that people use when they're scared. Like nobody ever goes, we have just heard a, a bomb has gone off in blah. They go, fuck, what was that sound? And that's your starting point. If you can get enough of those and you can geolocate them to a certain area, you can have the confidence to know that something is going on and then you dig deep and you look on other platforms and you try and work it out. Like one of the problems I always encountered was in France, teenagers in France uh, like to take the piss. So mm. they'll be like, oh, shooter in my school. So you'll see this and you're like, fuck. And then you realize, no, they're taking the piss, but it means then if something is happening, it's hard to tell. So that really got me into that world. And, you know, using Twitter and the kind of intersection of news and tech really became a passion of mine. And that sort of led me to data miner where I was really upskilled in not just how to use Twitter, but how to how to digest data and use it to its maximum effect. Um, did you find that attractive? Because you've gone from what is a very high adrenaline type of reporting. You never know where you're going to sleep. The, when you go into work in the morning, you never go when you go. But then you went into a much more sort of analytical, okay, this is your desk, Nick. You have to sit down here and work out what normal people say when a bomb goes off or when a plane crashes or that kind of thing. Um, did, did that give you the same kick? Did it give you the same um sense of achievement every day because there is something about standing there having done your report and told the world about something and this is the first draft of history kind of thing it's very difficult to do that with twitter searches and boolean searches isn't it well you know what even when i was at sky and there would be days when i'd be on the desk and not actually going to things i'd be looking at twitter and looking for things the rush of seeing something and being able to go you can go there go there now and you're sort of there is something you know exciting about the fact that it would take me i don't know six hours to get to Mali but actually if I look I'm looking on different social media platforms I know exactly what's going on and I can kind of get get everything ready from there so it's a different rush it's, it's not the same sort of physical exhaustion but there were days when I would finish that and and also again 
you know, the thing about social media is the images and the content you're seeing. There was a lot of sexual violence. There was a lot of murder. There was a lot of infants, uh, like murder of children. And you're just taking in a lot of that kind of uh, content. And it's hard. Like I had to process it and I had to, you know, get therapy and there are coping mechanisms for that. But it's, you know, it's a different kind of rush. And I, I do feel like I'm the kind of person where I need to know that what I'm doing is making a difference. Even if it's harming me somewhat, I need to know that there isn't, that this is for a good reason, you know what I mean? So I think it was a, yeah, it was a different kind of rush in terms of we were supporting different organizations to ensure that if there was a terror attack, you know, in the vicinity of where they were, we got that, them that we got the information to them within seconds so that they were able to take action. And I, I do, I know that we did save lives. I mean, the feedback from clients and organizations was, was that, you know, the Met Police, for example, were um, a client at the time and, you know, they were, I think they were, I don't know if they're trialing us and I have to be careful what I say because there are some things I'm not allowed to talk about, but they, using our software, they were able to get to a terrorist incident within six minutes and ordinarily it could have taken them much longer. So you know that you're having real world impact. It's a huge, huge thing. You mentioned there about the, the therapy thing, right? There's two things I want to ask you. One, I know the answer to the other, I don't, right? One, the, and the first one is, do we do enough to protect people like you and me from ourselves? Because we'll go running off. I remember being in, in Kiev in 2012 and those Russian language protesters and somebody told me, oh, it's all kicking off down the street. And I was just getting into an elevator and I nearly ran them down getting back out because he told me where it was, you know? Uh, so do we do enough to stop people like you and me from taking unnecessary risks? And the second part I'd like to ask you about, you mentioned some of the tools that therapy that you got at therapy and that maybe you got to help deal with these things. What are those things? Because when you're exposed to the kind of images and video that you've seen as a news editor you know that can have a long-lasting effect yeah I think so to the to your first point I don't think I don't think anyone could save me from myself you know I think that's the problem I, I but I do agree with you which is that there should be better structures and frameworks in place to ensure that someone is doing something um with a full understanding of what the consequences are and I think you know just from a sense of like you know I'm sure we've all done night shifts I would do four or five night shifts in a row and you know yourself on a night shift you have to sleep in the day but you're not really sleeping so I finish a night shift I get in my little car and I drive home and it was an hour drive but it would be just at peak traffic and I a few times I fell asleep on the road and I had a few accidents and I had to get rid of the car in the end because I knew it was going to kill me and actually you know those are things that we need to think about and I know a lot of people in different organizations who did night shifts and had serious car accidents and I don't know what you do about that but there is a duty of care where you know you've got a bunch of people who are in this job journalists because they are adrenaline junkies they're looking for the dopamine they they want to be doing this and they will stretch their body and mind beyond what anyone should and I don't know how you stop that person because actually if I had been told not that they not that it would have happened if someone had said listen you've been working for six weeks in a row you're thin your your hair is falling out you look terrible you need to sleep i'd have been like fuck off and get out of my way so i've got this thing to do <laughs> yeah exactly and you know i think it takes uh it takes a lot of self-control to sort of let the story go there was loads of time there i think there was one time where i had been doing a story for months and i was exhausted like legit, like clinically exhausted and my colleague said there's been another there's been a terror it was when there was a load of kind of bomb attacks going off you know like you go to this and I had to just say no because what's for me what's important is to do the job well and I knew myself well enough to know that I was not going to be able to do a good job like at one point my nose was just randomly bleeding which had never happened to me before and I thought if you if you go and you fuck this up because you're not in a good state of mind and you're not physically able to then you know they'll never send you anywhere again and I, I did have one incident once where 
I was so, I think this was in Nice. I was so exhausted and tired and I hadn't eaten for, I don't, maybe a few days properly. And I, I collapsed and I don't remember this, but I collapsed and um, my colleagues were like, fuck, what's going on? And I remember the a news editor who I loved dearly rang me and, you know, was like, what's, what's happened here? And I was like, no, I fell over. I fell over. I'm fine. Mm. And they were like, well, do you think you're going to fall over again? And I was like, no, no, I'm going to eat a lot of food. And they sort of, they said, do I need to bring you home? And I was like, if you, I was like, you can try, but I am not going to. So they knew, they knew well enough that to leave me alone. But I also, that was a warning for me that I need to look after myself better when you're doing those things. Are you better at doing those things now? Well, I'm not doing them, so that's probably helping. But yeah, I do. I mean, I'm in, you know, I'm in a new role now. And I think I like, you know, it's, in terms of the therapy, I think, you know, a big lesson for me was I get a lot of my self-worth from my career. And it's why when, you know, Twitter happened and we were all very publicly got rid of, I found that really devastating because there was something, I suppose there was something wrong with me that I, I couldn't, I always valued my job above everything to the detriment of friendships, to relationships, to my health and well-being. And I'm still working on it to kind of separate the two, because in my mind, I suppose my identity is so intrinsically linked with being a journalist. And, you know, yeah. the, thing, the thing with journalists is we all have egos and, you know, we don't do the job for money because there's no money. We yeah. do it because of pride and, and the stories we have. And I think, you know, it's taking and it'll take for a longer time. But that sense of, you know, I exist outside of my job and it's I, I'm really bad with boundaries. So I'll be on like looking through things at 11 p.m. And I'll also be trying to get things ready for my friends and colleagues to help them out. Mm. And, you know, some my partner's always like, you need to look after yourself first. You're, you're always giving and giving and giving. And you just, you know, you don't do anything for yourself. So it's a long process. I'm sure you have the same way. You just, you know, you've got to just step back and look after yourself. Yeah, but like like I say, that's an impossibility because I've always said that journalists, it's not just who we are, it's what we are. And it's so yeah. difficult to get away from what you are because we get into this for a reason because of the kind of people that we are. And you literally couldn't operate anywhere else. You know, you can't go into a bank and do what we do or behave the way we behave, you know. And while that's an absolute blessing because we have the freedom to do some wild shit and things that, you know, you and I could sit here and tell war stories for ages, like, you know, yeah. and we love it, you know, but to, to people outside, they don't understand, like, you know, again, the middle of the summer as we're talking here, people say to me, you know, why don't you take time off? I fucking hate time off. Like the whole me idea. What are people doing with their time off? Honestly, what are you doing? I don't know. I, when I have time off, I'm like, oh, great. I'll be able to get on with that thing I was meant to do. To do. Like time off, no. it's toxic. But also, I think the thing with being journalists is you, you have to really love the news. I'm obsessed with it. And I always, with breaking news especially, but like it's so much. And I think it is different. I think, you know, it is so much part of our lives and you, you have to be like wired a certain way to do it. Hmm. So you can't really separate those two things. No. And, and for anybody who's listened to this, because I know that there's a lot of younger journalists and students who listen to me when I talk about these things, I'm not recommending this. I'm just saying that this no, is how me it neither. is. <laughs> so, so be very careful going into this. If you want to have things like, you know, relationships and eventually possibly a suntan, you can't carry on the way we oh, do. No chance. No chance. <laughs> two of us are very pale. People can't see us, but just to say we are white as sheets. <laughs> exactly. Just the two palest people in the world in this business, you know. Um, you mentioned the bird app there and the fact that you were at Twitter. Um, well, I remember when you got hired by Twitter. Twitter, and it was one of the proudest moments of your career. And I was so proud of you as well for getting the job that you did there. And then, of course, it all went to shit when our good friend decided he was going to buy it for 44 yeah. billion and ruin it, you know. And um, could you just describe for listeners what it was that you were brought there to do? Because it was quite similar to what you'd been doing in, in the sort of the data analysis field, right? 
Yes, exactly. And uh, I think one of the important things here is, you know, what we've seen in the past few years is a real increase in misinformation, disinfo being used, you know, the Cambridge Analytica situation, data being used. It was kind of like, oh, we got data and we were like, oh, great, this is helpful. And then we were like, oh, and now what bad shit could we do with this data? And so we're and we're seeing it every day, like misinformation spreads faster than truth in all circumstances. And I think it's something like 300 times faster. So I think uh, Twitter was, they had a curation team and as part of that curation team, they were creating moments. So if anyone's used the app, you'll see um, during COVID, for example, there was a lot of misinformation around, oh, if you, you know, if you take the jab, you'll be infertile. And so part of the team's role was to find authorities on that. So the World Health Organization or people who knew what they were talking about and kind of package them and curate them into a moment which could be released on the platform and people could see it or label tweets of misinformation. So for example, like Trump saying Invermectin, you know, take that because, or like window cleaner, drink window cleaner. You know, it, the, the point of it was to, you know, improve the health of the platform. And I was brought in to help launch the trends team. So for example, the simple one is if you've used the platform, you'll see sometimes there are trending topics and a silly one would be like David Attenborough trends and everyone goes, Jesus, why is he trending? Is he dead? And, you know, the team's job was to find out why he was trending, analyze the conversations that were going on on the platform and just write a small little like blurb about it, whether it was, don't worry, David Attenborough is okay. He's just released a new movie, but, and that's a simple version, but the more complicated and complex things are with issues around, you know, the trans community, misinformation, you know, things will be trending that, will have real world harm to people that need to be kind of, you know, explained. And what we weren't trying to do is tell people what to think. But what we were doing was getting the facts from verifiable sources, obviously verifying them. I mean, it was mostly a team of ex-journalists and then ensuring that when you logged onto the platform, you know, and you clicked on a trend, you weren't just reading all the misinformation you had an idea of what the truth, what the facts were. You can then ignore the facts and still believe that you should be drinking window cleaner. Fine. That's, you know, that's your prerogative. But we were sort of, the aim was to ensure that people had enough information to take to take, a, take a kind of sensible decision about what was going on. Um, and obviously when Musk, you know, the process of his purchase of Twitter was happening, a lot of what he was talking about in uh, derogatory terms was, or free speech, then you know, there's no free speech, there's this, there's this, people aren't being allowed to have conversations. And it just wasn't true. There was so much of it that wasn't true. And there were so many accusations of things that we were doing as a team. And the truth is we were a tiny team. And if there were mistakes, it was because same as every organization, you know, there was maybe uh, there's less than a dozen of us in Europe doing a lot of this. And it's a lot of work. And it's, again, takes toll on people. You know, you're seeing a lot of you know, horrible things that you're trying to work out what the truth is. And we would also reach out to external parties like ch charities to kind of get a sense of the truth of situations if we didn't know, but we had experts on everything. So um, yeah, I think that was kind of the, the purpose of what we were doing. And it really, really sort of married well with my, my own interest around debunking this info, but also tech and product and understanding the impact that that can have. Um, just before he took over, because I think, I don't know if I said it to you, but when he made the bid first, I said, this is never going to happen because he doesn't actually want it. What he wants to do is he wants to be heard and he wants to be seen. And then he made this bid and basically, you know, he was taken to court in Delaware and sort of forced uh, yeah. to, to sort of, you know, to go all in on this thing. And um, before he came, did you expect what happened? Did you see this avalanche of bullshit coming? And did you know that, you know, your days at Twitter were numbered at that point? Or did you still have the hope that he'll just come in here and leave us alone and we'll be able to get on with things? 
So a few things. I think when I saw it happening, if I'm honest, uh, I think there's this perception that we were all inside Twitter going, you know, oh no, right wing, you know, we're woke and everything. And it's actually just not the case. A lot of us were in there and we were kind of like, this is exciting. You know, I'm a big believer in, I like change. You know, some people find it terrifying. I, I'm constantly pivoting and changing and I don't like routine. And, you know, the idea of someone with, you know, a lot of resource coming in and shaking things up for me was exciting. And I know that, you know, when I was, you know, working in journalism, you're constantly changing, you're pivoting, you're doing what you can. And then when you move into kind of more conventional businesses, there's so much bureaucracy and there's so it's slow. And I find slow, I'm very impatient. And I sort of, I had this hope that maybe he'd come in and we'd all have like, we'd all get to meet him and talk about what we want to be doing and what we think we can do better. And I, I do think it was a mistake on his part to just get rid of us all straight away because as you can see on the platform now, there's loads of problems, but there were also functions that we were doing that safeguarded, you know, a lot, you know, made the, made the platform more usable and safer and less toxic. You know, I'm looking at the trends the other day and it was, you know, pedophile, nonce, blah, 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 defamatory stuff, libelous things that wouldn't have occurred to that extent when there was a team in place to safeguard it. But, you know, again, I had hope. I was up for the change and it, you know, I found out that we had been got rid of because I opened a laptop and the laptop had a code request and it was like two in the morning and my phone was going nuts with, you know, all the people I managed, some of whom were, you know, going on maternity leave or were on maternity leave. It was terrifying for a lot of them. And it was a young team. Like I, I, you know, think me and one other person were in our like thirties or late thirties. And I just didn't, I couldn't compute it. And very honestly, I was sat on the sofa I'm sat on now and my partner was in bed and I was just kind of, I cried because it was so sad that all of this work that we had put into this and the ambitions we'd had, and I was so proud to join Twitter and I was so proud of the mission. And I just, I felt fear and I felt sadness for what was going to happen because I could see it. I could tell all the rhetoric and the ego and the dick swinging around, oh, free speech. And, you know, it's all come to fruition. Like you can see on the platform now, people are being, you know, you, you don't you know people are being rate limited from seeing tweets you know how is that not you know free speech where I, I think all the things he said he didn't believe in he's now probably realizing that actually you know it doesn't the world doesn't work like that you know you can't just go around saying what you want about people that is harmful hurtful or incites hatred etc and you know I don't know what's going to happen with the platform but I'm hopeful that you know they can bring themselves back because I, I do love the platform and I have a, a real sense of warmth towards it. And I think they're going to really struggle now with things like threads, blue sky spill. There's a lot of competition in a way that wouldn't have even been tried before because Twitter was such a king of social media. Hmm. So we'll see what happens, but I, I wish them well. I mean, it was, it's horrendous now because I'm currently on all of those platforms you mentioned and Mastodon and everything else like that, just trying to find the next Twitter because what Twitter used to be was absolutely brilliant. What it is now is almost sort of unusable because, as you mentioned previously, we used to use this for news. You had people who were verified. You would see that, okay, so-and-so has made a statement, comes from a verified account. That's a trustable source, et cetera, et cetera. And you can't really do that anymore. So in terms of finding, you know, what the replacement is going to be, if anybody knows, please tell me because, um, you know, if I don't, I'd give me an invite. <laughs> get us on there you know um in that sort of you know almost sense of grief afterwards because i know how much it affected you to be let go and not least because of the people that reported to you and how much you cared about them but you sort of took a couple of months you there was a little bit of time there where you weren't very visible on social media like you'd pop in and out every now and again uh, but then you got the job that you have at the moment which if i'm right saying so is it you're managing editor at pink news now 
Yes, yeah, exactly that. Okay, so a lot of people in the UK and maybe in Ireland will be familiar with pink, what, with what Pink News is, but maybe people around the globe may not be. Could you just sort of explain a little bit about what the news outlet, the kind of audience that it caters to and why it exists at all? Absolutely. So Pink News is the world's largest LGBTQ plus digital publisher. So we have a focus on putting out news, but through the lens of the LGBTQ plus community. So I'm obviously queer and a lot of, you know, the journalism I've been doing in my previous previously has been sort of like terror attacks, news, this, this, this. And it had never really occurred to me to like go into the more niche areas. But when, you know, I met the, the founder, Ben Cohen and um, the CEO, uh, Anthony James at at an event, it was actually a launch party for the news movement, which is another organization. And, you know, talking to them about the platform, and I'd never, I hadn't really used it before, I looked at it and, you know, hadn't necessarily engaged with that before. And I got this real sense of, you know, when I left Twitter, I had joined Twitter on less money than I had been on previously because I believed in the mission. And for me, that is the most important thing that you get up in the morning and you know that the thing you're doing means something. And I really felt talking to them that, like Ben, has, ben had this same sense of, you know, we, we need to, we can change the world. And I loved it. And, you know, I think that's what we're doing, we're trying to do at the minute. So yeah, I'm um, the managing editor looking after the whole of the editorial team. Um, so all the kind of different entertainment, hard news, et cetera, and also the audience team and looking at social platform development engagement. So it's a lot of, a lot of work and I've been working a lot of hours, but I, I really love it. And I work with some great people. It's amazing because you know you found something that you really believed in in Twitter, and then you went for that. And then I was sort of thinking that oh, she's just going to join some boring company now, you know, just go into sort of you know research for the financial advice, some bullshit like that. But no, you, you discovered this thing, Nick. Why is this so important right now? Because like I've been going back over the podcast I've done. I think there's nearly three hundred episodes there, and I've talked to trans people before. I've talked to queer people before about these things. Not that I understood why this was important. It was just that I felt that these were voices that needed to be heard, right? But why in particular is it important? Now? Now, did like is this if you had the choice between this job and some other job would you have taken this job just because it's most important now do you know what's funny you say that is because actually I do you know what was wild I don't know if you have this but you know when you're a journalist you sort of sometimes think god my, my skills aren't transferable to anything but journalism and then when you move I moved into tech I felt like oh, I'm learning new things and so but then when the Musk thing happened I was genuinely like what am I going to do now like this I thought I'd be at Twitter for 10 years I had I had said this is the thing I want to do for like I, I've always kind of moved within one year or two years because I get bored. Um, and once I've kind of added the value that I think I can add, I, I move on. But um, I, well, as soon as I sort of said I, the Twitter thing had happened, a load of consultancies, the big consultancies got in touch, like the BCGs and the, the all of them. And they were like, oh, do you want to do an interview for this random job? And it really gave me a lot of confidence that our skills as journalists are so transferable, especially if you have some understanding of news gathering and tech, et cetera. Um, but when I... And the interviews are great and there was all this infrastructure and these amazing opportunities at those places. But there's something about Pink News and like you say, the issues that are happening now, I felt like I could make a bigger difference. I felt like with all the skills I had and with what the team were doing, you know, people are being physically harmed. The trans community is under huge attack all globally. You see it trending on Twitter all the time. The amount of misinformation about the community that is the kind of misinformation that as well you know, isn't obvious. There are real subtle things about it that, you know, almost like a sophistical way of speaking where, you know, it sounds like it makes sense, but if you were to break it down, it doesn't make any sense at all. And I really, I thought it was important to, you know, I don't know what I'll do after this. And it's, you know, I feel like the kind of heyday of my career in terms of the running around and doing crazy things are, are coming to an end. But, and I feel like this is my last, you know, 
get your hands in, get dirty, like start, you know, fighting for cause you believe in. Um, and yeah, as I mean, we, we're all aware that, you know, we're seeing the hatred just against the LGBTQ plus community in general rise. There's a lot more, you know, this sense of free speech where people can say what they like, fine. But what they're really saying is they're inciting hatred towards a community. And it starts with the trans community. And um, there's something really shocking and upsetting going on at the minute, which is that you've got a division within the LGBTQ plus community. You've got the LGB Alliance and organizations like that who are rejecting the trans community and kind of stoking these fires of hatred in a way that, you know, they received themselves. You know, there was that period where gay men and lesbians were completely, you know, isolated from society in a way that caused a lot of death, suicide, you know, mental health issues. And we're, we're, we're kind of moved away from that now. And there's, I was reading an interesting um, research paper about the fact that a marginalized community, um, you know, there's this sense that they can't do any harm to other communities, but they can. Like, you know, the marginalized community, when another marginalized community comes in that are perceived to be lower than them, they will absolutely get involved with kind of trying to push them down because nobody wants to be the lowest of the wrong. And I think we're seeing that at the minute. And, you know, one of my own personal goals is to ensure that we, we, we provide a lot of debunking and understanding of that community. And we, we really give them a voice, amplify their voices. I'm really sick of hearing you know, panels about the trans community that have no trans people in it. Like, stop fucking talking about people, get them involved and let them speak. And again, we've seen this before with many other marginalized communities, but it's an issue that we're seeing with every legacy media organization, BBC included, will have a panel about should trans women be allowed to play in sport, trans men, et cetera. And it's like, why don't you go and speak to them about what's going on or speak to authorities on it? So, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen there, but you can be sure that I'll be trying to, to fix it. <laughs> I remember talking to somebody recently about that because obviously I work a lot in sports and uh, I was said you know, we're having this discussion about uh, with a person uh, about this thing and how, and how this particular outlet covered it and you know the person was giving me the usual lines that you're going to hear and oh you know they've been through male puberty it's always trans women as well it's never trans men and the most successful Athlete. the only the most successful uh, trans athletes as far as I know is a boxer who's won three pro fights and that's a trans man but I was talking to this person about it and they're like going through all these things and I was going have you ever spoken to any of these people and I was like no and then I suggested one or two people oh well they would say that wouldn't they go, well, hang on a second like you know our job is not to stand up there in the pulpit and tell people how the world is our, our job is to go out and ask people surely you know and when it comes to that like I mean an awful lot of Irish people like ourselves and especially Irish queer people would have sob stories about growing up in Ireland and how oppressed they felt and that kind of thing and luckily you're a good bit younger than me and um, how was that for you growing up was that something that you realized at a young age was it something that you know you felt you were very comfortable with in Ireland is it something you left Ireland to get away from so no I think for me you know very honestly I think and this will resonate I'm sure because I have a lot of Irish friends who have similar situations um my you know I have a parent my father is you know we don't speak he's incredibly homophobic and you know a lot of things but you know it makes it hard to have a relationship with those people um and I you know to the point about having to leave Ireland I think Ireland is is really moving ahead now they're really you know, Leah Varadkar was a moment for us, you know, gay marriage was a moment. And I think they are progressing. And as, as the younger generations kind of move forward, I think that really dilutes some of the toxicity. But um, if I'm honest, I never even, I never felt comfortable to say anything. And I think there's a period when you're a young woman where you have like admiration for the women and you're sort of like, oh, well, sure, of course, women are great. And I think, it, you know, I, I have some, my brothers, some of them are queer as well. And it's a different experience because, I, I, you know, from what they're telling me, men, sometimes it's harder to kind of 
you know, have that kind of familial relationship. I don't know. And I, I can't speak to it because it's not my experience, but I just thought I really, really loved like my friends and thought women were beautiful because they are. And I suppose the older you get and the more you kind of are made aware of things and, you know, in the media. And that's why for me, pink news is so important because if I'd had a pink news when I was younger that I could go on and have a look and understand that people, different people exist out there and they have different feelings and they dress differently. And, and I think at Ireland, in Ireland at the time, I went to Mount Anvil Catholic girls school in Dublin and taught by nuns for a period you know that's where Mary McAleese went I believe as well like that was not a place where you could be maybe discussing things like that and I weren't mad about the gays them girls and nuns no no they're not I'm you know it's funny remember we we had this thing where we were we we were knitting because obviously you had to knit god knows why I can't fucking knit now but um we knitted we all knitted teddy bears and me and my friend had two girl teddy bears and we were like oh they're gonna get married and I remember the nun being like no they're not <laughs> and obviously <laughs> as a child you're like oh, why is she being like that but like there was this like in, there, there's a sense or there was a sense at the time that it was a disease there's something wrong with you yeah. and and actually you know what when I went into like journalism and went into organizations there was you'd never tell people because you're in you're in you know male organization male kind of environments where those kind of things were really sexualized and so you know if you were really genuine about or oh, have a girlfriend or whatever the response would be oh one of those lesbos and I don't know if you ever found this but my language and the way I behaved in newsrooms I like so I'm so pretty foul-mouthed as it is but I was like really foul-mouthed and aggressive and sort of would almost behave in ways that would be typically aligned with a male's behavior and because you kind of have to just be be one of them and then when I moved to like data miner first but that was again a lot of journalists so you could kind of it was not such a steep difference but then twitter I remember talking out in meetings and being like well that's fucking bullshit like why are we doing it that way like and people being very like she's come from a journalism well I can tell you know some you know we have a lot of different kind of people at our current organization and I've worked with loads of different people but there is a difference between a corporate kind of polished person and someone who's come out of journalism and is moving into corporate it's a really that for me was the hardest transition was just watching my own behavior and language and trying to kind of you know I don't like process so I was sort of like why can't we just fucking do it and they're like no no you have to do this 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 and I'm like why explain to me and nobody could ever fucking explain to me and yet we still had to do these bullshit like academic sort of you know the boxes and this kind of crap but yeah so yeah no I would never really I think it's only recently I felt more comfortable being open about my sexuality because especially when you have younger siblings I really want you know it, it meant a lot to me to be able to look at people and sort of see see them being public about who they are and being authentic and I know that I'm I hope that someone would see a tweet of mine and be like okay it's okay you're, you're not not you know it's not the end of the world if you're not sure what your sexuality is jesus i remember growing up in the 1980s and we were all petrified that we would be gay because it was just that was oh, just oh yeah. no, wow it was like a death sentence and then there was a band called bronsky beats who released a single called small town boy and on the album i think they included some telephone numbers for some sort of gay organizations or community organizations and this is the biggest thing it was like and then if you bought the album well then you were gay too you know yeah, and you think back and you go jesus you know and now i think back and you know obviously the older you get the more people come out as gay or maybe not or you hear stories about people and that kind of thing and you think the fucking misery that those people were yeah. exposed to nick do you think that because one of the things you mentioned there but you know the sort of match 
macho aspect of the newsroom that I'm not surprised as a woman that you had to do that and almost in a sort of course like a sailor just to prove that you were yeah. able to match the men because that's the sort of the atmosphere in a lot of places. But do you find that with with pink news and when you were at Twitter and more sort of in the tech space that younger people and by that I mean younger people than the two of us that they, they kind of don't care about these things anymore. Somebody's queer, pff, they're queer. It doesn't matter. You know, it's not it's neither a badge of honor nor nor a, a millstone kind of thing. I think what's great about them, and I have a lot of hope for Gen Z, is that they they don't take they don't make any assumptions. Like they actually, you know, they don't they don't make assumptions and they don't have judgments. They don't, you know, they're very inclusive. And it's one of the things I really love about the team I work with. You know, they're just the most wonderfully um I can't, there's no way to describe it, but like colorful and bright and joyful and interesting. And everyone's got a really a wonderful perspective because I, I think you know for us I have set terminology that I learned as I was growing up and every day I learn a new word about the community and I'm constantly educating myself and it's it's not easy and I think one of the things we're also seeing is there's a real fear to discuss anything about the community because nobody wants to be transphobic or homophobic or they don't want to say the wrong thing and actually what we need to do is have open forums and spaces where people can kind of ask you know what's the difference between us being um uh, they them and a she they you know why what does that mean or, or what does non-binary mean you know and people are too frightened and actually what we're seeing is like from google data you can see people are asking those questions on google google is google like back-end data is the truth serum of the world there's a really wonderful book where it just basically uses all of the google data to tell you what people are looking at in different countries some of it's shocking but some of it is kind of sad you know there's a lot of that like what like what do i do if i'm <clears throat> a gay man married to a woman I think there are differences with Gen Z that our generation don't have, which is that they look after themselves more and they they do set boundaries. And, you know, if you ask someone who is, you know, of a certain age, oh, I need you to kind of stay late and do four hours. There are some, you know, they won't always do it or they'll ask why. And, and I really respect that about them in a way that, you know, if I had been told, put your arm in that fire, I'd have been like, yeah, which one? Maybe both. Yeah, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Whereas Gen Z are like, no like they're, they're really living they're working to live not living to work whereas I find my whole life has been like I I like work is my priority and it's not healthy so I'm I have a lot of hope for them a very personal question that you don't have to answer if you don't want to how do we change that because I think there's a certain generation of people who've been brought up with the idea that you are what you do right and you mentioned previously and I think both of us would admit to the fact that we take such like so much, so much of our self-worth is invested in, in what we do and what we do is so disposable right so you did some great stories in Pride Month there about Rishi Sunak uh, you managed to get hold of a video yeah. of him dissing trans people right but that's wrapping tomorrow's chips as they used to say in the newspaper yeah. industry right so we have to do this every day because if we don't do this every day then we're nobody like you know we don't exist we're not, we're not visible we're not doing anything how do you move away from that it's, are you finding it easier now after all you've been through at twitter and all you've you've seen and experienced in terms of trauma at sky and itv and that can you find yourself in that independent from what you do is there a different nikini now than maybe what there was when you started down this path yeah i think there is a calmer nikini i, I have a great partner and you know i've always been like leaning or looking for chaos and toxicity. I think when you when you're raised in sort of a traumatic environment and then you go into a traumatic job, trauma becomes the norm. And so then when you're in like a calm space, I don't, I can't be calm. Like I'm always moving or I'm or want to do something. I feel if as soon as I have a few minutes spare, I feel guilty if I'm not using those three minutes to do something productive. And it's partly ADHD, I found out since, but it's also partly like. I, you know, if you're, if you're, if you have to be still with your own thoughts 
for any period of time, what would those thoughts be? And I've had to really battle with that and with like periods of depression um, where my, my feeling about life was, you know, I wouldn't kill myself, but if it happened, I wouldn't be sad either. And I know a lot of journalists kind of have that feeling because you see so much horrible stuff that it's it's hard to see joy or take joy in things. And I still have it now when, when I have go through bouts of, I just wouldn't mind not being alive. But again, I have a wonderful partner and I think having support systems and one of the problems when you're a journalist is, and the, you know, putting all of your eggs in this identity basket of who you are because of your work, it means you don't foster those relationships to give yourself a sense of perspective. So I'm really trying to do that now. I still find it hard. Like I, I sometimes don't see friends for a long time, but they get it and they've known me a long time and we understand each other and that it's, it's not, it's something that we're working on, but no, it's hard. And I think, you know, a lot of having a supportive partner makes a huge difference because it's good for someone to kind of be like, stop, you're, you need to take a break. You need to rest. And it's, I saw when I'm stressed, I, I don't eat very much. I lose weight. And so my partner won't say anything about it, but what they'll do is they'll make me, they'll just make a big vat of soup because I'm obsessed with soup and they'll just leave it and I'll just, I'll eat away at it. And it kind of, without me realizing it sort of brings me back to health. So yeah, basically get yourself a wonderful partner and a dog is, is my answer to that. It's, it's tremendous advice. How does it feel now to be the person in the newsroom that other young journalists come to and say, look, there's this story I want to work in. Can I go? This breaking news story. Can I go? Because you're now the mentor, the editor. You're now the person who makes the decisions that so influenced your own life 10 or 12 years ago. Do you know what's wild is like the more the more you become a senior manager and you look after people. Firstly, the more I realize that I must have been a massive pain in the ass. I must have been a fucking nightmare for managers. And actually, I was told twice in different careers, in different jobs, that I was unmanageable. And I was like, well, then don't fucking manage me then. Get out of my way. <laughs> I've got and stuff I'm, to do here. Yeah, exactly. Move. Um, and now I sort of like I feel I feel very privileged. I do a lot of mentoring as well with the John Schofield Trust. And I feel very privileged to be able to talk to these young people. But what it also makes me self-reflect on is how young I was and how I really didn't know what I was doing. And, and also the ego of me, like the, the overconfidence I had that I wouldn't have now, I would assume, I never assume I'm right on anything. And I, I'm always looking for other opinions to kind of take a more informed view. And I was very reactive, you know, the kind of like, let's just go. Whereas now I'm like, and I'm, I'm still bad, but I'm like, take a breath and just work it out. Um, but yeah, I feel very, very privileged. And I sort of, I, I try and be really blunt with people I mentor and just in general, I'm quite blunt. So I'm really, I'm the first person to say, I never know really what I'm doing. I'm always unsure. I always kind of, you know, second guess myself, but you just have to do something and it might not be the right thing, but once you've done it, you know, you know, you can pivot. So I suppose, you know, again, you're, I'm sure you've had the same, like it's crazy in my head. I'm still that 25 year old running around for bot looking at bomb attacks and actually you know, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not old, old, but you know, we're not young anymore. And I feel it my fucking back every day I wake up and I'm in agony. So yeah, I'm, I don't know. It's, it's really amazing to see, but it also makes me, it makes me sad sometimes because I think, um, I love, I didn't lose my twenties, but I did dedicate them to my job. And there are things like festivals and things I see people doing that I have no experiences of. I wouldn't know, you know, and I wouldn't want to go now because of, I have a PTSD around loud noises and and it does take from you. And I, but I think it also makes you an interesting person. The most interesting people I know are journalists because, you know, we're all a bit damaged and bruised and beaten up. But, you know, mostly we do the job because we want to help people. And I think that is at the core of everything I try to do. 
It's one of the, the best things that I get to do. One of my favorite parts of this job is going to the Olympics. And uh, I was at the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang a few years ago and sharing an apartment with two of the greatest photojournalists you'll ever meet, Mike Blake and Dylan Martinez, both Reuters journalists. And just living with them for three weeks and coming back and they'd be having a beer in the evening. I don't drink and just t- telling stories for it. And it's just, it's and it's it's brilliant because that's what we love so much about it. You know, and Dylan telling stories about, you know, photographing IRA funerals in Ireland and Mike Blake talking about Michael Jackson's funeral. Oh. And, that kind of thing. and that's that's the kind of thing that we live for, you know. Where do you see your future, Nick? Because you've done all this magnificent reporting in the field, right? You were talking about learning to knit there and I just had this vision of you halfway up the, the Alps there for the German wing story knitting clothes that would be suitable for the occasion do you see yourself staying in the kind of editorial management role that you're in do you see yourself going back into the so the, the junction between editorial and tech do you see yourself going into charities or something completely different lecturing you know anything like that appeal to you I, I honestly don't know because you know what it was funny when my when the people I work with when you know I'm always really jealous when they're doing a good story and I have to stop myself from like sometimes I'm like, oh, I'll do the interview, I'll do it. And I'm like, no, you've done, you've had your time, give them the space to do this. And I really miss it. Um, so I don't know what, I don't know what you can do to kind of get a bit of that and a bit of this, because actually management is great and it's a huge responsibility, but it's not the most exciting thing. And it's hard, you know, management is mostly firefighting problems, no matter what organization you're in and strategically coming up with solutions and also future proofing for the future. Like const- I'm constantly thinking if I do this now in a year's time, what, consequence will there be or what impact and it's just a lot of thought and again a lot of um supporting others which is amazing but there are times when you just find yourself totally ragged you're just exhausted so i i think i would probably move towards maybe some sort of consultancy for news organizations or again perhaps working for like a a world health organization or un i wouldn't mind doing a bit more travel you know, not like in that sort of diplomat field where you're going to like crises, you're trying to help support refugees, etc. It'd have to be something where it meant to something to do it, like you were helping others. But again, I don't know because it's it's hard to see. Like the tech industry is all over the place, all of the redundancies and the stackings that are happening at the minute. You know, we always thought Twitter, big tech was safe. And actually now it's one of the most fragile, you know, areas going. So, but also news, like with AI coming in, I'm looking at a lot of my time now is spent looking at new AI software to implement and what it could mean and balancing that with, you know, the, the sensitivities around what people want to do. I don't want to, you know, we don't want to wipe out really good jobs with AI that won't do it as good as the people because there's something important about having humans at the kind of heart of everything we do. So it's an exciting time, but I imagine maybe something with AI tech, I don't know. So yeah, if anyone's listening in 10 years, if you have an idea, come at me. Are you happy, Nick? Um, I think it's a hard question. I mean, is anyone, I am sometimes happy. I'm sometimes sad. I have moments of happiness, um, but I have enough of them that I wouldn't change very much about my life at the minute. And I hope that that continues. I don't think I've changed very much about your life at all as an outside observer. It's been fascinating to watch your career and thank you so much for coming on the Global Gale. And you know what? We're only halfway through this story. So I imagine we'll have you back on again in the not too distant future. But for now, Nick Keeney, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Speak to you soon. Well, now, if you enjoyed that conversation half as much as I did having it, lads, Nick is just a fantastic person altogether, extremely intelligent, uh, got an awful lot to say about journalism. She's somebody that, you know, you will have noticed during the conversation there that uh, we have an awful lot in common in terms of our background of what we do and that kind of thing. But it's always fascinating to listen to other people on the other side of it. Like most of my life has been spent in, in media in Scandinavia, which is a lot different from where she's been working in the UK. 
and uh, the kind of stories that she's been working but I just found it fascinating altogether and if you don't mind right share the podcast lads if you know somebody who's thinking of going studying journalism in Melbourne or in Dublin or in New York or whatever you think Jesus they could probably do it they might learn something from that now before they apply it all so please feel free to share that with them and share all the other podcasts you will find as I mentioned before the interview there's a whole bunch of podcasts here on the arrowmanage.com podcast feed there is the global gale there is Irish in Sweden and if you're not part of the Swedish-Irish community, right, go back and have a listen to uh, last week's Irish and Sweden podcast with Anthony Morrissey. Because there's always a sort of a fine line. A lot of the, the stories that come out of the Irish community in Sweden are actually of interest to Irish people elsewhere. Even Grace O'Malley, uh, who I interviewed a little while ago on Irish and Sweden, about writing and drama and theatre direction and all that kind of thing, she wrote a piece for the Irish Times, which was quite similar to the conversation we had. So it's always worth going back and have a listen, a listen through things. And, of course, support uh, the podcast if you can. Patreon com forward slash man in Stockholm. Next week, as I say, there will be a little bit more in terms of football. We will be talking about the teams that Ireland are going to be facing in the World Cup. We might have a little look back because by the time you hear next week's podcast, Ireland will have played against Australia in the World Cup. So there might be a little bit of a review of that. We look forward to Canada and we will look forward to playing against Nigeria down below in Australia. If you have tickets, if you're going to any of the games or anything like that, please do get in touch, right? Because I'd love to speak to somebody who was down there um, Risha Littlejohn was on the podcast last week an Irish footballer played 15 minutes in the uh, in the qualifying process I'd love to hear what the vibe is like what the buzz is like where is I going for a few points beforehand and what you're doing and the kind of people that you're meeting and the kind of crack you're having so please do get in touch with the podcast if you are down in Australia for the Women's World Cup that is all we have time for this week it has been my pleasure as always look after you ourselves look after one another and I'll be back again next week with another episode of the Global Gale podcast the podcast for the 70 million Irish people around the world good luck